Episode 65, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, The French Revolution, Part 1. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. So, in the new world, there's a new country with a new constitution and a new central government. Now, this like had never happened before. It was an astounding thing in world history. And that fact was not lost on the people of the old world. People all over Europe were watching what happened in America with great interest. And when the United States was able to actually throw off the British government, and then they were able to come together and successfully create a new form of government, the people of Europe were impressed and also inspired to begin to think about creating new forms of government for themselves. And one of the countries that was the most eager to think about new forms of government was France. But France was a very, very different place than the United States, and its process of altering and abolishing the old form of government and instituting a new government would be very, very different. The biggest single reason for that was the entrenched power structures that existed in France that were not really present in the United States at all. Those structures in France had held power in there for almost a thousand years. While the United States was throwing off a foreign power structure, that of Great Britain, France was going to have to throw off its very own power structure. And that was a power structure that very much didn't want to be thrown off. I should also say right here at the start that the French Revolution goes in several phases, and I'm not going to cover all of those phases in this episode. I'm going to have to come back to that in later episodes in order to stay mostly chronological. In 1776, when the colonies declared independence, France was already at war with England. In fact, France had been at war with England on and off for over a hundred years. But over the first half of the 1700s, there had been nearly constant fighting in one place or another between France and Britain as the two strongest powers of Europe struggled for supremacy. Now, one of the upshots of all this fighting was that France was struggling financially. And while the New World colonies had been a source of income for England, it had been the other way around with France. France was actually spending more than it was making on its New World colonies. It was spending money to support them rather than taking money in from them. Some of that just boils down to corruption and poor management by the French. It's the French. But they were not as organized or efficient as the British in their colonial efforts. But then again, whoever was. And in some ways, France didn't really need to be. France was by far the wealthiest country in Europe, in part because there was just so much old aristocratic money concentrated there, and in part because France is, well, France. It's one of the most fertile countries in the world. A lot of that agricultural production was exported and sold in other countries, which is great income for France. They also had some important exports in textiles and arms and sugar production, though much of the sugar did actually come from colonial holdings in the Caribbean. Despite all this income, France was struggling financially. To make matters worse in France, just after the American Revolution, in the 1780s, there were several years of drought and very poor harvests. 
the peasants were suffering greatly, as were the poorer people in the cities, especially Paris. And to add to the tension, the wealthy were still very wealthy, especially the nobles and the royals. The income disparity between the rich and the poor was growing and growing more obvious. And what was going to end up being worse for the French, things were actually getting worse for the middle class. The middle class had been growing, but now in the 1780s, it was struggling, especially in Paris. The French money had been devalued and even things like bread were becoming expensive and scarce. The French middle class existed in the space between the poor, poor workers and the ultra-rich nobles. The middle class, now this was pre-industrial revolution, right? The middle class was made up of merchants, professionals, educators, and lawyers, and it was generally a pretty well-educated group. This was the group that was the most interested in the American Revolution, the French, the French middle class. If you've ever read or watched Les Miserables, the students who manned the barricades they're a pretty good representation of this group, as was, in a sense, Jean Valjean. And in a sense, you could say that Javert was part of this group too, though he was actually on the side of the nobles, but he was middle class. Now, I should also point out here that Les Mis is not set during the actual French Revolution. It's set in a time of some later minor uprisings that happened in the 1830s. But my point is that the students that you see in Les Mis are a good representation of the kind of disaffected intellectuals who are about to lead the actual French Revolution. So after the wars and the bad harvests, a lot of people across France are struggling, especially in the bigger cities and most especially in Paris. Paris has always been prone to civil unrest and protests. We see that still today. And pressure was growing for the government to do something. So in 1789, after several years of waffling about it, King Louis XVI called together the French General Assembly. The General Assembly was a type of congress of the different classes within France, and it was only called together on very rare occasions. The assembly was made up of three groups, the nobility, the clergy, and the middle class. Now, of these three groups, the nobility was clearly the strongest and the wealthiest, but the clergy was a close second. The clergy was really just the Catholic Church in France, and the Catholic Church was the single largest landowner in France, and it was incredibly wealthy and influential at the top. But at the bottom of the Catholic Church, there were a lot of local clerics who felt more akin to the middle class because the local clerics weren't paid very well. The middle class was mostly made up of lawyers and doctors and some professors and some of these lower-ranking French clerics. Everyone wanted financial reform, but the middle class also wanted equal representation based on populations from the regions that they represented. The nobles and the clergy, the upper clergy, did not want to grant that kind of equality. The nobles and the clergy did not want to give up even the slightest bit of their power, prestige, or wealth, and so they were very resistant to the reform ideas of the middle class group. Positions in the church and the government in those days weren't given on merit. Most of those positions were hereditary and they were passed down within the church and within the nobility. So changing the government and the way that it worked meant giving up these kind of hereditary positions, making changes to the structure. And of course, the nobility didn't want to give that up. These were the jobs they gave to their kids and their kids earned a lot of money out of them. They had held those positions for a thousand years. Why would they give them up now? The middle class group quickly became angry at the lack of fair representation of their causes, and so they left. They left the General Assembly, and they started their own assembly. 
Now, this was an incredibly big deal, and they were very consciously emulating the Continental Congresses of the United States. The middle class claimed to represent the people of Paris, and, and they sort of did because they'd all been elected, and so they all held their positions by local elections. And they had, by far, throughout France, the most popular support. The nobles and the clergy were afraid of the mobs, especially in Paris. The mood in Paris grew tense and paranoid. There were rumors of a military coup, the king was in hiding, and everyone sensed that something was about to happen. Crowds gathered in many different protest marches, and in salons and clubs all over Paris, men were plotting to try to find ways to effectively put pressure on the powers that be to make some substantial changes. All over Paris, people were agitating, organizing, and stirring things up, just like in Les Mis. On July 14, 1789, a large crowd that had been brought together and organized by the middle-class instigators marched through the streets of Paris, and they marched up to the notorious French prison that is known as the Bastille. Now, the Bastille was located on the east side of central Paris, not too far from the Cathedral of Notre Dame. It had originally been a fortress when it was built in the 1300s, but it had been converted to be a prison by the middle 1700s, and it had held some notorious French instigators. But by 1789, it had gained the reputation of being the place that the crown would put its most notorious political enemies, sort of like the Tower of London or the Lubyanka in Moscow during the Soviet era or like Guantanamo as used by the U.S. government. Anyway, the Bastille was seen as a symbol of the monarchy and a symbol of the monarchy's abuse of power. Now, there were only actually seven prisoners in there on the morning of July 14, 1789, but the crowds didn't know that. So the crowds, which were led by members of a middle-class militia, stormed first a complex called the Hotel des Invalides, which was a sort of set of buildings that included a rest home for injured soldiers. But it also had a substantial armory. There were about 30,000 muskets there. But the captain of the guard at the Hotel des Invalides had already transferred all the shot and gunpowder to the Bastille, which was more secure. So the crowd captured the Hotel des Invalides without incident, but not finding the gunpowder, they moved on through the streets to the Bastille. At the Bastille, they demanded entrance. At first, a few of their leaders were let in for negotiation, but as this dragged on, the crowd grew restless, and then they surged into the inner courtyard of the Bastille and began trying to get through the gates into the actual building itself. Soon, shots were fired, and the Battle of the Bastille was on. And so was the French Revolution, though they didn't realize it at the time. There was firing on both sides, including some of the cannons in the fortress. Eventually, the captain of the fortress, realizing that he was trapped, he capitulated and surrendered the fortress and its prisoners. Like I said, there was only seven, but he also surrendered the gunpowder. Now, the mob were fully armed. They marched back to the Hotel de Ville, which was the compound where the mayor of Paris lived. They captured the mayor, and they were taking him to what would have been a show trial at the royal palace, but he was killed by the mob on the way. So by the end of the day, Paris was in chaos, with armed mobs controlling much of the city. Outside the city, in Versailles, the king was unaware. He only learned of the chaos the next morning when he was told by one of his nobles, the Duc de la Rochefoucauld, and when the duke told the king about it, the king said, Is it a revolt? De La Rochefort replied, No, your highness, it is a revolution. The next day after that, 
the crowd installed one of their leaders, Jean-Sylvain Bailly, as the new mayor. Bailly had already been the president of the middle-class branch of the National Assembly and the president of the broken-off National Assembly. After Bastille Day, the National Assembly dissolved and essentially only the middle-class assembly continued to exist, and this became the Congress, or sort of Parliament, of the French government. And it began making official pronouncements in the name of the French government. The king himself was forced to move from Versailles into the city of Paris, where he and the royal family were more or less trapped. The next month, on the night of August the 4th, the National Assembly voted to completely end the feudal system in France. Now, this was a crazy evening, apparently, where they just went crazy making pronouncements, but they eventually decided they're going to completely end the feudal system. And this is an enormous change. They basically took every aspect of French life and government, and they threw it away and began trying to institute a new system of government. They abolished the nobility. They abolished the ability of the church to demand ties. They unilaterally ended all personal servitude and slavery and a host of other feudal institutions. But making all these decrees didn't completely end all the existing structures, especially outside of Paris. It's going to take several years of ongoing fighting and chaos for these institutions to really change, and the French Revolution is going to change direction several times over those years. But the National Assembly had begun the process of remaking France. Now that they had undone feudalism, at least on paper, the National Assembly started working on its own version of the Declaration of Independence, which became known as the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. The first draft of the Declaration was drawn up by the Marquis de Lafayette, who is one of the interesting guys who deserves his own episode. He was the guy who had served with General Washington in the American Revolution and was, at this point, seen in France as a national hero. Lafayette was assisted in his writing by none other than Thomas Jefferson, who is in Paris as an American ambassador. Now, Lafayette's draft was later revised, and the Assembly adopted the full declaration on August 26, 1789, and published it the next day. The Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen consists of 17 points that are known as articles, and it's an impressive collection of Enlightenment ideals. But it wasn't really considered law. However, it was later incorporated into several of France's constitutions. Now here are some of the 17 articles. Article 1. Men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Social distinctions may be founded only upon the general good. Article 2. The goal of any political association is the conservation of the natural and imprescriptible rights of man. These rights are liberty, property, safety, and resistance against oppression. Interesting to see that there. Article 3. The principle of any sovereignty resides essentially in the nation. No body, no individual may exercise any authority which does not proceed directly from the nation. Article 4. Liberty consists of doing anything which does not harm others. That's a great idea. Thus, the exercise of the natural rights of each man has only those borders which assure other members of the society the fruition of those same rights. These borders can be determined only by the law. That's a really, really profound article right there. Article 5. The law has the right to forbid only actions that are harmful to society. 
Anything which is not forbidden by the law cannot be impeded, and no one can be constrained to do what it does not order. Article 6. The law is the expression of the general will. Now, this one goes on and has a bunch of other pieces to it, but that's a really, really great idea. Article 7. No man can be accused, arrested, nor detained, but in the cases determined by the law. Article 9. Any man is presumed innocent until he is declared culpable. Article 10. No one may be disquieted for his opinions, even religious ones, provided that their manifestation does not trouble the public order established by the law. Article 11. The free communication of thoughts and of opinions is one of the most precious rights of man. Oh my gosh, that's so true. Any citizen thus may speak, write, print freely, except to respond to the abuse of this liberty in the cases determined by the law. Article 14. Each citizen has the right to ascertain by himself or through his representatives the need for a public tax, to consent to it freely. Hmm, have we ever done that? No, I don't think we have. To know the uses to which it is put and of determining the proportion, basis, collection, and duration of that tax. Wow, that's a great idea. Article 15. The society has the right of requesting an account from any public agent, hear that Joe Biden, of its administration. And Article 17, property being an inviolable and sacred right, no one can be deprived of its private usage if it is not when public necessity, legally noted, evidently requires it and under the condition of a just and prior indemnity. In other words, you can own property and no one can take it from you. Some great ideas held in here. It's overall, it's an impressive collection of ideals making a big point of the equality of all men and of inherent rights, as well as making many pronouncements about the basis of law and government. I skipped a few of those articles. You should go back and read them. It really is a very impressive set of ideas, and it really does condense a lot of the ideas of the Enlightenment. It has elements of both the American Declaration of Independence and the American Bill of Rights, but it's a different type of document than either of those. The Declaration of the Rights of Man is sort of a philosophical document saying that the assembly believed that these were the ideals upon which their future government and society should be based. One of the things that you can see sort of behind the ideas in the Declaration is the French version of a long train of abuses and usurpations. But in this case, it was done by the nobility against the rest of the French population. Many of the articles of the Declaration are directed at specific abuses of rights by the French nobility. But where the American Declaration of Independence was a group of people essentially rejecting a foreign government, the Declaration of the Rights of Man was a group of people rejecting not only their own current government, but also rejecting their own social structure. The American colonies already had a culture and social structure that was very independent and democratic. They all had their own colonial assemblies and legislations. And part of what they were rebelling against was that Britain wasn't letting them be the way they already were. They were already independent and self-governing. But things were very different in France. The middle-class delegates of the assembly were voting not to ratify sort of their own pre-existing culture, 
that was being meddled with from afar, but instead they were voting to throw off a culture, a way of life, a set of rules, laws, habits, customs, a whole social structure that had been embedded in France for the last 1,000 years. And it's a much more monumental task, honestly. Another big difference between the American and French revolutions was that in France, there were a large number of urban poor people in Paris and the other bigger cities, but there was nothing quite like this in the English colonies. The upshot of this is going to be that the urban poor and the violent mobs that they constituted had a big effect on the French Revolution as they shifted sides and supported first one side and then the other. After the Declaration of the Rights of Man was published, there were celebrations and riots all over Paris and out in the rest of the country as the news spread. We're about to start 10 years of French self-destruction that's going to see the birth and the death of the first French Republic, the death of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, and the eventual creation of a new French empire ruled by an emperor. That, by the way, wasn't the plan of the men in the assembly in 1789. Well, for the next three years after 1789, the assembly basically ruled France as a constitutional monarchy. The king was still around and many of the nobles, but the assembly controlled the military and thus sort of controlled the country. Maybe control is too strong a word though because there was still a lot of chaos. But the assembly did mostly control Paris, and they basically held the king and his family hostage in a palace there in the center of town. For the three years that the assembly ruled France, there were different groups competing for dominance. There were groups that supported a constitutional monarchy, which is sort of what they started with. But there were groups that wanted a full republic, and several different groups in between. One of the people advocating for a radical change was Maximilien Robespierre, who wanted a republic based on universal male suffrage. That is, the idea that every adult male could vote. That included allowing all the people of the lower classes to vote. Now, this was, of course, very popular among the lower classes, but not at all popular with the middle class and the remaining nobility. During these three years, several of France's neighbors sought to infringe on France's territory since they saw France as weak and troubled. The assembly then sought to draft people into the army, and that was immensely unpopular, but after a while they did manage to build up the army and fight off some of their enemies. They also used the army to enforce public order. They created a special armed group called the National Guard, which was sort of the armed police force of the assembly, and their job was to keep peace in Paris. And they were led, at first, by Lafayette, who had a lot of public support. In 1791, though, things suddenly began to change. In June of that year, 1791, King Louis and his family tried to sneak out of Paris in disguise. They got out of Paris, out of the city, but the next day, Louis was recognized in the town of Varennes, and he was arrested and returned to Paris with great fanfare. This episode greatly changed public opinion about the king and monarchy, and there were even more calls for a full republic. 
in September of 1791, news came to Paris that the French army had defeated the Prussians, which was a much-needed breath of good news. But it also emboldened the radicals in Paris, since now there was no longer a looming threat outside from an external enemy. On the 22nd of September, the assembly, who was dominated by the radicals at this point, voted to end the monarchy and create a full republic. And the first French republic was born. While they began to work on a new republican constitution, the next year was mostly occupied with the trial of King Louis XVI. At the end of that year, he was convicted, and in January of 1793, Louis was sentenced to death. And then on January 22nd, he was publicly executed by guillotine. Now, this was an amazingly big deal. They executed the sitting king of France. In a way, this signaled the end of the old French monarchy and really the end of the entire old French way of life. But France did not move easily into a new republic. Instead, France from now on for the next seven years is going to face a horrible seven-year period that is known by the notorious title, the Reign of Terror. The terror will reign until the end of 1799, the very end of the century. And the terror, and the First French Republic, will be replaced very dramatically by the First French Emperor since Charlemagne. Next episode, we will look at the Reign of Terror and the beginning of the Reign of Napoleon.